y'all. Happy 2021. Whew. And what a year it has been already. Well, one, I have a legitimate podcasting mic now, so hopefully I sound a little bit better to y'all. But also, these questions of the causes and consequences of violence in pursuit of social change are continuing to be relevant in new ways. So let's dive right into What's Up With Race Riots Part 2, a study from approximately the Wilmington coup to the Rodney King riots. The first era of race riots in this second section is race war, which lasts approximately from 1898 and the Wilmington coup to 1921, around the time of the burning of Black Wall Street, which gets into the definition of a race riot and how it shifts in the 20th century. The modern idea of a race riot generally looks like oppressed people, generally black people, destroying their own neighborhoods because they don't feel like they're being heard. But that's not what race riots looked like a lot of last section or at the beginning of this section. Rather, they are by white people in power and they are attempts to hold on to power and to perpetuate oppression rather than fight it. And another note is that some of these race riots that are coming up are classified as race riots, but race riot is kind of the nicest way to put it. Some of these things range from coups and attempted coups to straight massacres. Though the era of race riots spans over 20 years, this period of racial tension and violence centers in the summer of 1919, which is often called the Red Summer, for multiple reasons. But one of the big ones is because there were at least 26 race riots across the country. When I say across the country, I mean north, south, east, west, urban, rural. There is a shift in these race riots before they were almost exclusively in the south, but they do move north and into cities as black people move north and into cities to escape lynching mobs and limitations to their economic standing in the south. What characterizes these race riots is both racism and also very clearly competition, jobs, and perceived threats to local white power. And looking at these riots, there are generally four threats to local white power. The first one is a general disruption of the racial caste system. And what I mean by this is very similar to what was happening in the era of white terror, when a black person did something that was perceived as uppity and disrupting the status quo of white superiority and black inferiority, they faced violent backlash. And this got worse as black people migrated because they ended up moving into white neighborhoods and becoming competition in places where black competition for jobs had never occurred before. So in the name of keeping the status quo, these newcomers were violently put in their place. The second of these perceived threats was a military threat because during World War I, black people joined the military and black soldiers became a threat because a military uniform has always been seen as a symbol of manhood and citizenship. And when black people wore them, it was seen as a threatening claim to equal citizenship, which wasn't helped by the fact that black men wearing military uniforms came home and demanded better treatment because they had fought for America. And this was a threat both to white civilians and to white soldiers. Like in Norfolk, Virginia, where a celebration of returning black veterans ended with white naval officers attacking black people because they felt disrespected seeing black vets being honored. A third perceived threat was a labor threat. 
black workers were perceived as a threat. One of the biggest things was that after World War One, there was a huge increase in job competition because when white men became soldiers and left the country, a lot of new people entered the workforce, both women, black and white, and black men. And when these soldiers came back, there were just a lot of people in the workforce, so a lot more competition. So there was just a lot of tension. So these labor riots generally were either strikers and union members seeing black labor as a threat and attacking black workers, because often since black people were frequently barred from unions and because of hiring discrimination, they would be willing to cross picket lines when white workers went on strike because that was the only work they could get. But also, sometimes black people were allowed in unions or would go on strike with white workers. And whew, workers' rights were hard-earned, y'all. This was back in the time where when strikes happened, owners would sometimes just send violent mobs to attack striking workers to get them to come back. And if black people were on strike with white workers, they would get attacked too. And a final perceived threat was a political one. These local race riots actually looked a lot like lynchings and lynch mobs of the white terror era. Local community leaders would be at the head of these mobs and rally these mobs in order to solidify their own power. In terms of social change, there were two big social changes as a result of the race war era and specifically the Red Summer. One was a compositional change. Again, because of these riots, black people left and were driven out of a lot of places that they never returned to or didn't return to for decades. And on the other side, it also caused black people to organize more, which was actually both a cause and a consequence of these riots, because as they organized to protect themselves from the violence, because the police were clearly not being helpful, this angered white people more, but more people joined as more violence happened. And when I say uniting and organizing, I mean groups like the NAACP and the United Negro Improvement Association both cropped up at this time and gained a lot of members. That brings us to the next era of race rights, fighting fascism at home and abroad in the 1940s. These were still mostly white-initiated riots and actually had a lot of very similar reasonings to riots the decades before. The Great Depression, paired with the Red Summer riots, motivated a lot of Black people to move north in pursuit of economic opportunity and safety, which led to more competition for jobs and housing. And not just between Black and white communities, but also between Mexican-American and white communities on the West Coast. There was another war, and World War II gave more Black people military uniforms. And because it was specifically a war against Nazism and fascism, it seemed to many Black people very hypocritical to be fighting fascism and white supremacy abroad, but not to be addressing it within America. And to add to the economic threat, FDR banned discrimination in the defense industry because Black people threatened to march on Washington in 1941, which just added more Black competition for jobs. In Mobile, Alabama, for example, when 12 Black men were promoted to defense jobs that were typically reserved only for white men, white workers rioted in outrage. And with all this going on, Black people were also continuing to organize. They were fighting against racism and police brutality in both peaceful and violent ways. That's when the beginning of the era of sit-ins and demanding better treatment on buses started. And this is also when what a race riot is starts to shift. It's generally agreed to have started in 1935 with the Harlem riot. 
1935, which is considered the first modern race riot. And the big difference is, other than being Black initiated and fighting oppression, these riots were aimed at property, not at people. And the police were a lot more willing to act against these riots. So let's look a little closer at the Harlem Riot of 1935. This is generally considered the closing event of the Harlem Renaissance, even though Harlem was already struggling in the 30s because it was the Depression and a lot of the nightclub life that had employed a lot of Black people in the 20s had closed because of the Depression. At the same time, Harlem, being a Black neighborhood, did not get a lot of attention. The government didn't invest in infrastructure there. There was redlining, hiring discrimination. The education system wasn't great. So Black people in Harlem were already frustrated. But then, Lino Riviera, a 16-year-old black Puerto Rican, was caught stealing a cheap penknife from a store and detained until the police showed up. And people were very concerned about what was going to happen next. So a crowd formed outside of the business and the owner, wanting to avoid trouble, dropped the charges and the police sent the kid out the back of the store. But the crowd panicked. This kid had disappeared. The community already distrusted the police and the police refused to answer questions about what happened to them. So they thought that the police had killed him, which not only were the police being dodgy with questions, there were also a couple other things like a hearse parked across the street for a completely irrelevant reason. But anyway, people panicked. The crowd got bigger and the police just kept trying to disperse the crowd. And eventually the crowd broke into looting and property damage. And again, what makes this different is that it was targeted against property. So like millions of dollars of property damage happened, but only three people died. All black because the police. And after this riot, Mayor LaGuardia did try to institute some infrastructural changes because it was clear that there was real frustration. But this was very clearly not enough because eight years later, in 1943, another surprisingly similar riot happened in Harlem, the Harlem Riot of 1943. Now, in terms of social change, there actually clearly was social change from the riots in the 1930s and 40s. The first civil rights legislation did emerge from this era. This was both as a result of Black organizing and because of violence, both white and Black, surrounding these issues highlighted the urgency of the cause. And as the first civil rights legislation passed, this built the momentum that pushes us into the civil rights movement. An example of this civil rights legislation is that President Truman, following up FDR's order against discrimination in the defense industry, Truman signs Executive Order 9981 to fully desegregate the military in 1948. Kind of late, considering that Black people had fought in every American war before this, but that's a story for another day. Instead, let's move on to the turbulent 60s, which was exclusively Black-initiated riots because attempts at peaceful change weren't working. These riots were generally in Black neighborhoods, but against white businesses. And white involvement in these riots also changed. It faded to be almost exclusively just the police responding aggressively to these riots because even most of the death during these riots was Black people killed by police. The riots of the turbulent 60s center around the long, hot summer of 1967, where there were 163 riots, and the riots of the next year, 1968, following the assassination of Dr. King. So the riots of 1967 were against police brutality and the fact that there was, in America, a general indifference to Black suffering. 
following white flight. Black neighborhoods had poor housing. The schools weren't great. And unemployment was high. There was just a sense of hopelessness. So they changed their tactics. Most of these riots started with police misconduct, actually. False arrest or brutality of some form. And then, in 1968, following the death of MLK, the riots started up again. For a lot of the same reasons, not much had changed in black neighborhoods in that year, but also just because MLK was a symbol of peace who always said black people didn't need to resort to violence to make change. And yet he was gunned down. So it makes sense that like people were frustrated and angry and resorted to violence. Rather than break down what actually happened during the riots, I want to break down change following them. Because I would say that the social change was mixed. The riots of 67 and 68 definitely brought attention to Black people in cities and forced people to start questioning why this was happening, why people were angry enough to do this. Because, I mean, there was clearly a problem with so many riots across the country. And in response, there were some good things. The government did start to give some money to many cities to fight poverty, revitalize urban areas, and start youth programs. But because this was still during the Vietnam War, none of these cities really got enough attention. It was a very short amount of time where the government was paying attention to these neighborhoods before they went back to fighting the Vietnam War. So it was never enough. These riots caused a lot of white people to start asking questions, but they often didn't get the right answer. They often didn't see racism as the cause. And one of the big consequences of riots in the 60s was the militarization of the police. This is where that quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, comes from. And it was a philosophy of the mostly white police forces in black neighborhoods treating rioters like they were fighting guerrillas in Vietnam. And this was a philosophy backed by actual policy like the creation of the first SWAT teams and the army beginning to offer counterinsurgency courses to high-ranking police officers. And on top of that, the federal government also started to get involved with local policing because the National Guard got called in for so many of these riots. First, they started funding local policing with the Safe Streets Crime Bill. And then on top of that, Congress established the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration, which coordinated giving military technology to local police. This was a huge shift from LBJ's war on poverty toward a war on crime that led into Nixon's war on drugs with its mass incarceration issue that can still be seen today. But that's a story for another day. In terms of addressing the issues that Black people were rioting about in the first place. Another ineffective social change was that LBJ formed the Kerner Commission to investigate why these disturbances were happening. And this commission actually said that the violence was due to racial inequity and division, but no one ever really did anything about what the Kerner Commission said. So instead of addressing the issues at the center of these riots, America just criminalized Black people more aggressively. This leads right into the Rodney King riots, where black frustration against police misconduct led to four days of rioting. And it's an interesting place to look at the black vigilantism idea my friend Janae and I discussed in the first part of this episode. So here is the conclusion of our conversation. One of the most interesting time periods where this appears is with the Rodney King riots. Which is why I brought my friend Janet on here, because she focused on that in our class. So let's start with a little context. I can provide a little bit of context, though I'm definitely not 
a historian of this. I wouldn't even say I'm an expert or anything close to it, but really interesting time period. So all the Rodney King riots or the 1992 Los Angeles riots, as they're sometimes called, stemmed from the really brutal beating of a man, Rodney King, who was pulled out of his car during the middle of the night, I think for speeding. Does that sound right to you, Brooklyn? I can't remember. While there was a high-speed chase involved, Rodney King was actually stopped for a DUI. But still, it was... Something very minor. So he, he got pulled out of his car and he was viciously beaten by more than one police officer and someone caught it on camera. So this is like really famous for being like one of these first sort of viral black person getting really brutalized by the police officer going viral after the jury acquitted the officers. None of them would face any time for that. It led to a lot of riots in LA. So that's kind of the big overview, though there's also this really like interesting tangential thing that happened where there was a 15-year-old black girl in LA who had also at the same time was killed by a Korean grocery store worker. She's 15 years old. Her name was Latasha Harlins. And she was shot by a Korean-American convenience store owner after he thought that she was stealing. So that was also something that was happening at the same time. And so there was a lots of different race-related things going on in LA, which is a really diverse city. So that's my quick sum up of what happened. Being a lesser known but still relevant part of the racial tensions in LA in the 90s, let's focus in a little bit on that tangential event. It's definitely really interesting. There was a lot of tension between the Korean American community in LA and Black community in LA. I read through a lot of newspapers for my paper of Korean Americans being described as vigilantes. Some of them were Korean American shop owners. Some of them were like arming up to protect their stores from people who were looting. A lot of them assumed to be Black. So there was a lot of tension. A lot of Black people who were out in the street looting actually specifically said that the reason that they were out was not just because of Rodney King, but because of what had happened to Latasha. So it was this double thing that was going on. The big thing that I want to discuss is that in response to Rodney King, there was this outbreak of violence in L.A., and it's often misinterpreted. The same way it kind of is now, there's this idea that people are just troublemakers. They're just taking advantage of a bad situation by acting out criminally. But that's not even what the people were out there saying as it was happening, which is kind of what your paper was about, right? You focused on how people were talking about what they were doing. So what about what you read helps you classify them as vigilantes? So I'll caution this with the definition of vigilantism is sometimes tricky when it comes to, I did a lot of work trying to figure out when are rioters, when are protesters considered vigilantes, when are they not? So one thing I'll say is just because someone isn't a vigilante doesn't mean that they're rioting or protesting for meaningless reasons. So I found that a lot of people who were protesting may not have been considered vigilantes. They weren't doing all the looting and stuff as a way to seek justice, but that doesn't mean they thought it was meaningless. They weren't just doing it to do it. Like they had real complex reasons for doing it. But that said, there definitely were people who were not considered vigilantes that I think even in like a classical, very like Western white man way of thinking about vigilantes, really, I think did count as vigilantes. So some of the reasons that I found that is just because 
in lots of interviews and quotes with people, they, they say things like, we're out here doing what the government won't. Or, and this is definitely complicated going back to the Korean Americans, and I'm not going to provide as much nuance as it deserves, but the lots of tensions between Black Americans and Korean Americans. And at the time, I mean, it's still Black Americans don't usually own a lot of stores in our own neighborhoods, especially poor Black communities. And there were Black people, we have, we have quotes, who were specifically targeting, and this is not a lot of people, but there were some Black people who were specifically targeted non-Black stores, sometimes Korean stores in their neighborhoods. And they said, like, we don't own any property here. No one else is redistributing the wealth. So I'm going to do it. The police aren't doing it. The constitution isn't doing it. So I'm going to do it. So like the motive is really interesting. It's definitely there. I mean, when I set out to do this paper, I was like setting out to like prove everybody was a vigilante. And I don't, I definitely don't think that's the case. Like a vigilante is like a, you're like a unique, incredible kind of person to be in a vigilante, but they're definitely there. And vigilantism is actually talked a lot about in the Rodney King riots. Like we hear people talking about all these communities basically broke down and people were arming up, protecting their neighborhoods, protecting their stores. And we hear those people being referred to as vigilantes. And it's it's interesting that often people don't use that same analysis to talk about the other side of the equation. And there were definitely vigilantes on both sides. What you were saying, the way that there was this idea that like the government was failing, the police were failing, so we have to do it for ourselves, is a lot the essence of vigilantism. To get a longer and more thorough discussion and definition of vigilantism, check the beginning of What's Up With Race Riots, Part 1. You couldn't classify everyone as vigilantes. So what were some of the reasonings you found for people being out? What were people saying about themselves? Okay, so I don't have the full draft of my paper, so I'm going to be butchering quotes. But my paper was actually called something like, we did more in four days than the government did in 400 years. And that quote was just so powerful to me. Like, it was just a random quote from some guy they stopped in the street and who just really expressed what was going on. And I found that to be like a definitely notable amount of people who saw themselves, saw looting, saw going out into the street, all of that stuff as a form of seeking justice. And I think that's really interesting. Like, it's different from the definition of protest. Like, I think you can definitely make an argument that pro- that looting is protest. Like, you know, your protest is you're getting attention to something. You're uh, trying to get the people in power to pay attention. Whereas vigilantism is you're actually doing the the justice yourselves. So I think it's actually like when you really think about it, it's actually really interesting to think that there that people were saying things like me engaging in looting, me like setting fires, me like being out in the street is a form of justice. And a part of that is because people were connecting. You hear this a lot of times, people say like, you're burning down your own neighborhood. You hear that kind of stuff all the time. And some of these people said, this really isn't my neighborhood. We own none of it. <laughs> like, It's disgusting. It's dilapidated. Like I have no pride in it. And me burning it down, me kicking unwanted people out of the neighborhood so that Black people can move in, that is a form of justice in itself, a step that the government won't take. I mean, I don't want to say that it's always good. I, I mean, I think that there is definitely like actual racism going on, for sure. Like there was some really anti-Korean, like xenophobic sentiment, but it was really complicated. There was also a lot of anti-Blackness in a lot of those stores. 
So it's really complicated, but you know, there are statistics I think that also help put in context that there were definitely some people there that saw the looting in that way. Like I, I'm looking at this this statistic now. There was LA Times did polling of a bunch of people in LA about their reactions. And just a statistic that stood out to me is that 80% of black Americans in LA believe that the federal government only paid attention to black concerns when blacks resort to violent demonstration or riot. And I, I mean, I think that is like 80% believe that riots are how you get something done. And again, that's not necessarily vigilantism, which is why I'm not saying everyone or even the vast majority was, but there's definitely like setting the stage for that, for understanding that people went out there and rioted as a way to make change and sometimes seek justice. Even if it's not vigilantism, it still proves that like violence as a method to social change is something that seems necessary often. It's definitely something that is not talked about for sure. And I I mean, I I grappled with this when I was writing the paper. Like, it's hard. Like, obviously, you never want to have to be in this situation, right? Like, no one wants to burn a city down. So it's hard. I, I definitely still grapple with that, with everything that's going on. Like, yeah, it's difficult. But I think what's important is, I think it's for me, I'm spending less time trying to figure out if things need justification or if things don't need justification and spending more time thinking about what does it mean when this stuff happens and not whether it should have happened. Cause I think that's a really complicated answer, but it has happened. And this is a really great sign that lots of people are really disenfranchised because you don't do this if you don't feel like you don't have to. It was a crazy event. 6,000 people were arrested. 63 people died. So, I mean, this was a really bloody event that I mean, I wish didn't have to happen for sure. Did you find that any social change happened after the Rodney King riots? Not a lot. Policing didn't change in any way. You know, none of the police officers were held accountable. But I will say that there was something special that happened amongst Black people in L.A. What was cool is I got to focus a lot about rap in my my article. Like, the day the Knicks took over, it's Dr. Dre's album, and it's all about the Rodney King trial. And one of the rappers on here says, they wonder why I'm violent. They don't understand for the reason why I take the law in my own hands. And I mean, Dr. Dre was huge in the 90s. Like this song, this album, The Chronic, became a national sensation. I think one thing about the Rodney King riot is it does mark kind of a point, I think, in American history. And I'm no historian, so I'm really just putting this out there. But you, I feel like you used to get punished as a Black person for making songs like this, for for talking so publicly about this. And the, after the L.A. riot, rappers continued to stay famous, actually became more famous when they said they participated in rioting, like became more famous when they said they were taking their law in their own hands. And that, I think, is a little special. The fact that that became sort of mainstream it was okay to be mainstream like the fact that that video was so viral like it became everybody in the country paid attention to it i um, honestly don't think there were a lot of like real changes but i think all of these events show how like resilient black people are how creative black people are and that's what stuck with me at the end was like wow this this is like a really resilient and amazing group of people. Maybe, you know, I'm, I'm going to take it back. Maybe that's not even a change. Maybe that is something that is completely on track with the way that 
Black people have always been in this country and Black people have always been fearless and not afraid to like put this stuff in the mainstream. I'm thinking of like uh, Strange Fruits right now. So maybe that completely uh, debunks everything that I just said beforehand because that song was massive, but she faced big consequences for that song. So that's where I'll leave it. (laughs) Mostly just amusing. I'm thinking through that. I don't know exactly, but I think there's something there to be said. I first conceived this episode and recorded some of it in response to riots that looked a lot more like Rodney King than the Wilmington coup. But now, in January of 2021, this episode and the present just show what Dr. Jackson from episode three calls the double standard of the American riot. The way that Black protests and violence are always classified as un-American in a way that white protests and violence aren't. And that's really all I have to say. If you like my show, tell other people about it, like it on Facebook, and as always, all power to all people, y'all.